Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to Pangolin, the conservation podcast. The podcast dedicated to telling fascinating, fantastic, interesting, underexplored and amazing conservation stories that inspire me and I hope will inspire you too. I am your host, Jack Baker, uh, and on this week's show, I am joined by Tilen Jenov of Moreganos, the Slovenian Marine Mammal Conservation Organization. Today, we're going to be talking all about cetaceans, whales and dolphins all over the world, but specifically within the kind of remit of this organization, which is around Slovenia. Um, now, the reason we're talking about this, I think a lot of you might think, oh, dolphins, really popular animals. Why are you covering this on a show that's supposed to be about animals that uh, not a lot of people know about? Well, not only is this kind of population being studied for the first time and exclusively by this organization and by Chilen, um, it's also um, something that I've really wanted to talk about, not only because I have a love of the sea, but also because I feel like a lot of the conversation around whales and dolphins focuses on them being kept in captivity. Of course, you have the scandals of blackfish, perhaps most infamously, but then also things like recent calls for tour providers and holiday operators to pull out of selling tickets to SeaWorld as part of their package deals and stuff. So kind of focused conversation there. And I, I really want to while that is all very important, I want to focus on today's episode on dolphins um, out in the wild and the threats that they face out there. Um, and that's really it, it leads to some really interesting discussion. Um, we talk a lot about the kind of pollution aspect that affects them. So not just and not just in the kind of physical things that we imagine when we talk about pollution, like the plastics, also the chemicals that are released into the ocean as well. We kind of cover um, that that aspect, which I think is is really interesting. We also talk about dolphin behaviour and identifying dolphins and all sorts of other topics that I hope you will find, yeah, extremely, extremely, extremely interesting. So I will be quiet now <laughs> for a second because I think Tilan is the uh, best person to talk about this. So I will leave it here for just now and I'll be back at the end to sign off uh, once you've had a listen to this interview. I really hope you enjoy. Uh, and as always, link to everything we discuss can be found in the episode description. So if there's anything while we're going through that you want to look at or want more information on if you go to the description you'll be able to find all of that there as well so i hope you enjoy and yes i will uh yeah i'll talk to you again very very soon So welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Tilen Jenov, the founder and president of Morigenos, the Slovenian Marine Mammal Society, who is also a member of the IUCN Cetacean Specialist Group. So he is here to talk about his work and more specifically his recent work with dolphins. So thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you and thank you for having me. Thank you. Um, I thought just to get started, I always like to ask people to just kind of introduce themselves to the listeners and let them know uh, a little bit about your background and yeah, where you are now. So I'm a, um, I consider myself a marine conservation biologist. I mainly focus on marine mammals, um, specifically whales and dolphins in particular. And uh, I, in my work, I combine uh, scientific research. So I am a, I am a field biologist. I spend a lot of time in the field and um, and doing research. 
But I also focus a lot of my time on um, things like education and public awareness and also working with uh, different stakeholders, including fishermen and government and so on to kind of promote and, and hopefully improve conservation of the marine ecosystems. So this would be kind of me in a nutshell. <laughs> Yes, and it's really interesting and kind of so many things there that uh, we'll come to throughout the, the interview and I'll ask you about your work in different elements. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I actually noticed today when I was doing my last little bit of research about you is you went to St Andrews, um, which is where I did my master's. So it's kind of, I wanted to ask what you worked, presumably, what was your master's in? What was it you kind of did there? So I uh, I went there to uh, to do the uh, MRS course in marine mammal science mm -hmm. uh, because uh, as you might know St Andrews actually has one of the largest if not the largest marine mammal unit in the world um, so I went there to kind of you know uh, broaden my horizons get certain uh, additional skills in marine mammal science and I actually happened to work for my thesis uh, on something completely I mean, quite unrelated to what I do normally here. I, I'm based in Slovenia and most of my work actually um, revolves around uh, Adriatic Sea and Mediterranean Sea. But for my master's, I did, um, I, did, I did spatial distribution modeling of three small cetacean species in Chile. So Chilean dolphins, Pio dolphins and Burmeister's porpoises, because I wanted to kind of get broaden my horizons kind of to a non-Mediterranean species and something I haven't worked with before. And uh, at the moment, I'm actually in my last stretches of my PhD also at St. Andrews, although I'm not currently physically there. Uh, but yeah, so uh, St. Andrews is kind of a very important place for me generally. It's yeah, I the new marine science building was lucky to get into it before it all had to kind of close this year um so it's yeah it's a fantastic facility and i did a lot of we had a lot of lectures and work did a lot of work there so and um, when i saw that pop up this morning i thought i had to ask um i yeah, actually have yet to see it i haven't been there since the new building opened so i was supposed to go there last year but then you know the pandemic happened and so still need to go there and see it it's it's worth look forward to it one day it's a good thing to have your light at the end of the tunnel is you'll get to go and see it because it's a fantastic building i really liked it but the the lecture halls i think were really good but they were poorly designed in a way because you have this beautiful glass wall behind the lecturers and so you're sitting there looking out at the ocean and all this beautiful scenery and you're trying to focus on what they're saying but you're also looking out it's it's a one it's a fantastic building but yeah be aware if you're talking to an audience you really have to grasp their their right, attention right. <laughs> um, so yes, um, but that's interesting that you mentioned kind of working with the Chilean species. It, was it always your interest was this particular kind of group of animals, the dolphins, whales, or was that something you only found when you got to university and started studying these things more deeply? What when did this kind of interest start? Yeah, it, it's for me it started already at a very very early age back when I was a kid in, in primary school, basically. Uh, I was also always kind of interested into nature and animals and being interested in different aspects of nature and different animal groups and so on. I even had, you know, periods as a kid, as a kid of being more into snakes or being more into large cats and etc. Uh, but I kept kind of coming back to cetaceans, uh, to whales and dolphins uh, regularly. 
And then as a kid, I was I was lucky because I was exposed to a, a Italian group uh, working in one of the islands, uh, one of the Croatian islands in the Adriatic, uh, because my relatives happened to live on that same island. So already as a kid, I kind of got uh, interested in what they were doing and uh, visiting them, asking uh, loads of questions, uh, too much questions if you ask them, probably. <laughs> um, and so that kind of, you know, transformed into something more serious, into this becoming something that I really knew from a very early age that I wanted to do. Uh, so even before actually starting university studies, I was already fairly active in field research. And uh, the studies basically just made, uh, you know, made kind of a formal um, baseline for me to continue and pursue this, this direction. Interesting, interesting. And then obviously you've gotten very into it now by kind of founding this organization and all that sort of thing. So I, they probably they can't complain about you asking all of the questions because it led to where you are now. If you if you've just kind of been annoying it with them and then done nothing with it, then not they could complain. But now now nah, they no excuse to be moaning about that. Um, and I thought before we kind of got into your recent work, it would be worthwhile for the listeners just kind of um, obviously. I think a lot of the conversation that um, focuses around cetaceans now is specifically regarding kind of um, them in aquariums and then the, whether they should be kept in them if that kind of debate going on. And I wondered though, if you could kind of tell us about, obviously you work with wild um, animals. So I was wondering if you could kind of sum up for the listeners who might not know what the major threats are to, to cetaceans out in the, out in the wild. So uh, the threats, generally speaking, threats are quite uh, numerous and quite varied. And this will also depend highly on the species and even the location you're, you're talking about. So it might not be the same for all uh, whale and dolphin species. Uh, for some, ship strikes might be a bigger problem, such as uh, some of the large whales like fin whales or sperm whales. The primary threat to them is actually ship strikes from large, uh, fast-moving uh, cargo ships or fast ferries, etc. But then for other species, um, underwater noise might be a bigger issue. But for marine mammals generally and globally, the primary threat uh, worldwide is getting caught in, um, in fishing nets, getting caught as bycatch in fishing nets, so not, not being the primary target but incidentally getting entangled and then dying uh, in these fishing nets. And, I, and again, this will vary by location and by species. Some species will be more um, vulnerable to this than others. And, and even there might be differences among different populations of the same species. But generally speaking and globally, bycatching fishing gear is the primary threat to, to survival of cetaceans. And a number of species are currently at the brink of extinction because of it. So, sorry, just to add, there's then also other issues such as, you know, uh, plastic pollution, which is quite a hot topic uh, nowadays. Uh, chemical pollution is also another issue, which is kind of a silent and invisible threat to these animals. Um, so in some cases, it's one threat. In some cases, it's the other. And in many cases, it's actually the combination of all these threats combined, you know. Uh, and just to note, Many people think that, uh, for example, whaling is a conservation issue, but in reality, whaling might be more of a welfare issue if we are concerned about, you know, the suffering and dying of, of animals, which we kind of think of as being quite highly intelligent. 
But in terms of conservation, uh, whaling used to be a threat in the past, and we actually did bring some of the species really to the brink of extinction. But today, whaling does not really play uh, a direct uh, threat to the survival of species at the moment. Most other things that we as humans do are is playing a much bigger role. That's interesting. I think it's a really interesting kind of distinction to make as well, because it, it's often you find that people are very quick to to point the finger um, at communities that maybe because of cultural practices or kind of certain things do take part in, in whaling. But then if they were to actually look at themselves in the mirror, you can think actually all of the other issues that are affecting them probably more you can have an impact on. So instead of complaining about other people's actions, feel free to voice your opinion on them, but also look at what you're doing and, and affect them, um, affect your kind of your your the way that you act. Um, so yeah, that's a, a really interesting, I think, important distinction that, that you made. And I think it's, yeah, something that struck me that you were talking about previously is the kind of bycatch from fisheries and things. Um, and uh, what I found fascinating is last year, looking into kind of river dolphins, you'd expect them to face a whole series of other threats, but they it's similar things when you kind of go from all over the world, you jump around these species. And I wrote a couple essays last over the last year about river dolphins and then um, kind of tracking dolphins out in the wild using um, kind of aerial methods and things. And always you seem to, these same themes would spring up. So it's, you see, yeah, that was a really good kind of summary, I think. Uh, so thank you very much for, for giving it. Um, and something else you brought up, of course, was the pollutants, which was something that you're looking into with your, your current work. Um, and I wanted to ask kind of, um, what are the major effects of pollutants on on these species? Um, uh, I guess if we start, you said there was both the kind of chemical side and then also the physical items. What are the kind of impacts of the physical on uh, cetacean species that you work with? So the the physical pollution typically, I mean, for the most part, uh, relates to plastic pollution. Uh, not only, but for the large majority, uh, it's it's the plastics which is the problem because it's it's uh, it's not easily degradable. It's very present in our in our cultures and societies because we we tend to use it a lot. And the main problem is because a lot of the plastic we use is uh, you know disposable. It's not the long lasting plastic which is less of a problem. It's this you know plastic that we use once a, a plastic cup and then we throw it away. And uh, again. Plastic pollution, even though it's a hot topic, it's not, in my view, it's not necessarily the main or the biggest problem, but it is a problem. It doesn't mean we should, you know, diminish it or, or ignore it. But again, when it comes to whales and dolphins, again, it can vary drastically among species. For, for, so for some species such as the bottlenose dolphins, for example, which is kind of your most typical uh, flipper <laughs> dolphin uh, present in, in most parts of the world, uh, including the Mediterranean, and I focus most of my work on, uh, on bottlenose dolphins, they seem to be fairly resilient to the effects of plastic pollution because we fairly rarely find uh, pieces of plastics in their um, stomachs or in their uh, digestive tracts. They seem to be fairly good at avoiding uh, either ingesting it or getting entangled in it, although there are also exceptions. But then for some other species, such as some of the deep diving whales, like uh, sperm whales or uh, various beaked whales or even resource dolphins, 
they seem to be much more impacted by plastic, uh, presumably because of the way they feed, the, the mechanisms of, of their feeding, which tends to happen in very deep water, often probably at the sea bottom. And a lot of this plastic uh, debris ends up being at the sea bottom. And even though the exact mechanisms are not well understood yet, it seems that these species are more impacted by, by plastic uh, pollution. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult to generalize and it's very also very difficult to assess the population level uh, impacts of plastic because, you know, you might find a young sperm whale stranded on a beach with a full stomach of plastic debris in it. But it's very hard to know if, you know, the death was caused by this whale eating this plastic or if something else was already wrong with the individual that and then led to, to it trying to find you know alternative food which end up ended up being plastic uh, for example the animal might have been hit by a ship and unable to feed normally which might have led to it uh, ingesting more plastic or it may have been uh, compromised uh, uh, in its health and that might have led to some abnormal feeding um, behavior so it's very hard to tease apart these single cases and then generalize them to the entire population. And this is still kind of a um, topic of active research among many scientists. But it just goes to show that, you know, not all plastics uh, is necessarily the same amount of problem for all species. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about the kind of compounding of these things that it's not you can't boil it down to this one issue entirely there's yeah you've got to see where the, the intersections kind of meet and where various things a whole bunch of things that become very very complicated and very 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 quickly it's not like oh we can generate yeah it, I, the headaches that you must have sometimes if you're given a, a sap or a case that says this animal has died and please explain to us why must yeah not be not be a particularly easy process how do you even start out of it like how do you even start if someone was to come to you do you just have to break down and try and identify every every factor that might have affected it and work back from there or how does that work i think i think this is where where good science comes into play and and you know trying to go and follow what the data are telling us and and trying to find caveats and and holes and um uh, gaps in those data before jumping to conclusions because it's very easy to jump into conclusions i mean i think humans are we are all we are all prone to that we are all easy to you know make a conclusion based on insufficient evidence and i actually have an anecdote related to that we had a case where we saw a dolphin one of our known dolphins with a big plastic bag kind of wrapped over its dorsal fin on the back and of course the first reaction that anybody would get is like oh poor dolphin wrapped in plastic you know that's horrible the animal is suffering and, and not what and whatnot but actually that animal seemed to have some sort of a thing for plastic bags because as we were observing it the the bag slid off the animal and the dolphin turned around, came back to it and picked it up again, actually, and continued swimming with it for a while. Then it kind of slid off again. The dolphin turned around again, picked it up again. And this was happening for a while. So, you know, this particular individual had apparently some sort of a thing for carrying a plastic bag on its back. Of course, we don't know what the reason was. Um, maybe it... Uh, 
liked the feeling, maybe it was fun, maybe he had an itch that had to be scratched somehow. Uh, we sometimes joke that maybe this was just a fashion accessory. Uh, we really don't know. And of course, this doesn't mean that, you know, people should go out and throw plastic bags in the ocean so that dolphins can play with them. Obviously not. But it just goes to show that things are not always as they might seem in the first uh, in the first instance and that we should, you know, kind of take a step back and try to as objectively as we can assess the evidence. So coming back to your question, it's a difficult one and, um, you know, just collecting more and more information from different animals and, and different sample sizes then gives us kind of a wider picture. Unfortunately, each individual animal can be informative, but on its own, we cannot draw any conclusions from a single finding or a single stranded animals. They're all informative and this is why collecting this information is very important and why publishing this information is important and why Stranding networks actually in different parts of the world have, you know, a huge uh, value to them because over the long term, we can then look at, at some patterns and, and learn new things, which might then help uh, improve the conservation for these animals in the future. Yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear about the kind of um, the, the fact that you need to do these studies all over the, the world. It's, yes, I, I was speaking on last week's show to somebody from the Marine Conservation Society and we were talking about how their citizen science projects, you can look at what's on one beach and that's kind of interesting, but it's more interesting to see the comparison and the picture you get if you do a hundred beaches around the coast of the UK or across the world and then you get to see this kind of wider picture. So it's interesting that, yeah, you bring up that kind of need to, to share it and kind of go further than just studying in one place at one time. This is what's going on. Um, exactly. And I guess, yeah, um, we touched on what may be the kind of obvious issue to look at in that there's plastic, the plastic floating around. But the, the other pollution issue is, of course, the things you, you can't see. Um, and I wondered if you could explain, and it's probably very, very complicated, but for listeners, if they were kind of wondering, well, how did kind of these chemical pollutants, how did, what's the story with that? How does it get into the water and then how does it affect the, the animals that, that are interacting with it? So there is a number of, of um, chemical compounds that uh, some are natural and some are man-made by, by humans. And I guess the very quite uh, important two examples are uh, so-called PCBs and DDTs. Mm -hmm. uh, they are, um, man-made substances and I'll, I'll focus more on the PCBs which are polychlorinated biphenyls. Uh, they are man-made substances that were used for a number of things including uh, sealants, electronics, um, paints, um, a, a number of different applications in, the, uh, in both technology and infrastructure that, that we humans used. And uh, in, especially in the 60s, they were widely used for a number of things and they were kind of, you know, super useful uh, for a number of aspects. But then uh, it turned out that they were actually super toxic and dangerous, not only to human health, but also to the environmental health. And it turned out that there were uh, some of them were actually cancerogenic, so they can actually cause cancer. Uh, and most of them were, were immunosuppressants, which means they mess up your immune system to the point where it is no longer able to fend off uh, general normal pathogens uh, that we would usually you know, be able to fend off. 
and therefore you or an animal might get more susceptible to certain normal diseases that you would be able to kind of resist otherwise. But now because your immune system is compromised, you're not able to do that and you, you cannot succumb to the effects of the disease more easily. Then uh, these, these compounds are also hormonal disruptors, which means they, they mess up the hormonal balance in our bodies. And they're also, they also impair reproduction. So they might actually slow down or, or, or completely suppress reproduction through a number of mechanisms. So bottom line, people realized that they were super dangerous, not only to human health, but also to the environment. And they were banned uh, back in the 70s and 80s throughout most of the developed world. But the problem with these compounds is that A, they are still kind of present in some of the old infrastructure or landfills or even captured in the marine sediments. And then when we uh, dredge certain uh, ports or, or, or maritime pathways, we kind of bring, resuspend them back into the water column. So now they become available to the marine food web again. And the other problem is that they are, they are super persistent. They're very hard to degrade. They don't, they don't degrade easily which means they are still circling the marine environments even decades after they were already banned. And we actually see this in dolphins that, that their PCB levels are, are still quite high and they actually, uh, these levels actually exceed the thresholds for which we know based on a number of studies worldwide that they actually start to have physiological effects on the animals. And, and many animals uh, actually exceed these uh, thresholds. And one of the problems with, with these PCBs is that they are stored in fat tissue. And in case of dolphins and whales, the most of the fat is found under the skin in the so-called blubber, which is their uh, insulation, basically. And what happens is when a female is pregnant, and especially when she gives birth, a lot of these fats are mobilized from blubber into milk because whales and dolphins are mammals, just like we are. And uh, uh, this means that the, the young suckle mother's milk. And when that happens, a lot of those PCBs are actually literally washed off from mother to the offspring. And uh, in some cases, the, the calf might actually get a lethal dose of those PCBs and, uh, and die because of them. Uh, what happens to the female is that she gets kind of partially cleaned off by these things because she dumps her load onto the calf. And that's why in some populations, we also see uh, higher levels of firstborn calf mortality. So the first calf will often get this major dose of these pollutants and might not survive because of it. And then subsequent calves might actually do better because they get lower, uh, lower levels. And in case of females, they, they, if, if a female gives birth, she will kind of drop uh, she, she will be accumulating these um, compounds over her lifetime, but when, when she has her first calf, she will offload a lot of that, and then she will be kind of probably oscillating at some, you know, mean value. But males don't have that mechanism. Males just keep compiling them uh, more and more and more, accumulating them. And this is why, based on... Um, laboratory studies with mink and, and rats and so on, we see this effect actually, the, the difference between males and females, 
and we also expect it based on what we know about mammalian physiology. And interestingly, we also see that in, in our dolphins, for example. Here uh, in the North Adriatic, we did a study where we actually compared males and females, and males had drastically higher levels than females. And then we, when we further compared females uh, among those that already had calves to those that never had a calf yet, again, it was a drastic difference, which kind of supports this notion of this so-called maternal offloading. Uh, and this is quite interesting. I mean, it's expected, like I said, but it's it's not very often that we actually get to show this in uh, in free-ranging cetaceans. There are a couple of studies in the world that, that were able to show this. And um, so this is kind of a general story with, with these PCBs and uh, shows that they're still present in our environments, even though they were banned decades ago. Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, it's... It's a very sad story, obviously, because it is kind of affects these animals so much and it will kind of, yeah, it, it, the optimal solution is clearly not, oh, having a calf die every time. That is, is what is the kind of, I, through your work, you've kind of seen this um, proved in, in your kind of area, but what is the kind of, what would your recommendation, what is your then recommendation or what, are there, is there any solution to this apart from just until it all has been absorbed and passed through like what is the how do you fix an issue like that so there's a number of or, of things to consider here uh there is this uh thing called the stockholm convention which actually tackles this issue uh specifically and there's a number of of provisions or recommendations that that member states uh, that different countries can do to tackle this pollution uh i don't i'm not an expert in in the particular field of remediation and how you actually remove these compounds from the environment. But there are, there are actually ways where you can prevent either leakage from, from, from landfills or old infrastructure. infrastructure. Uh, you can prevent or limit or at least um, modify the way you, you dredge ports or, or channels and so on to prevent the, the spreading of these compounds into, into the wider, wider environment. There are even methods where you actually kind of actively uh, clean out the sediment uh, of these things, which I don't know the details of, but but there are ways that, that this can be done. And actually, the United States have been quite successful in this in some places, uh, because US generally had a bigger problem with PCB pollution than Europe has, but they were also more aggressive in tackling it afterwards. So uh, Europe has been kind of less has been more passive in this front which might be why we still see quite high levels in 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 some places so so yeah generally speaking there are there are ways that that pollution uh, can be reduced or at least uh, to prevent you know new uh, amounts of pcbs and, and other pollutants to get um, to be discharged into the marine environment but the second thing important to know, even if we might not necessarily be able to solve it immediately, is to be aware of these uh, the effects that these pollutants play, uh, including how they might uh, synergistically interact with other stressors on, on these animals. So, you know, it's often not one of the threats like fishing or shipping or tourism or pollution that will kill off a population. But when you put these things together, the effects might start to be significant. So, for example, with PCBs, 
they on its on their own they might not necessarily kill off a population but if something were to happen some catastrophic event which leads to some mass mortality i don't know like a oil spill or or something like that then the pcbs can actually prevent recovery because they suppress reproduction and because of the effect they have on the reproduction so it is like you said it's quite a complex topic and there's no easy fixes but uh, being aware of these things and uh, you know and keeping them in mind in various conservation strategies is important and then we also can use them to learn uh, from from past mistakes because you know even though we banned pcbs and ddts there are now new so-called emerging contaminants that are introduced to the world which are used and then for almost every new compound a couple of years later we find out that they have you know some negative effects on the environment so sometimes it's maybe better to learn the lessons from the past and maybe prevent making the same mistakes in the future um, yeah it, it's a complex topic but this is kind of i guess in a nutshell Yes, I think it was a very good summary because it's it's one of those things I asked you to explain probably years and years of work in one answer. So it's a, an impossible thing to kind of tackle, um, but it was a, it summed it up very nicely and kind of hopefully people will listening will kind of take away and think, oh, OK, if there's something that's looking slightly concerning or something that kind of I shouldn't be really be doing, but it's OK because it oh, it'll only have a little effect. All these little effects add up and all of the things go on and it's yeah it was when you it was yeah thinking about the the oil yeah oil spill scenario or a kind of major event scenario where we like to think the chances of those are, are minimal but if there are all these other things that are slowing the reproductive rate are slowing the kind of if you've got a, suppro a suppressed I think the last year we're all very aware of what happens if people have a suppressed immune system it can have serious effects and serious things so it it's something that transfers between not just it doesn't just affect us it affects all these other things or all these other animals that kind of you might not necessarily think of immediately but are very important to think about so yeah that is really interesting and i think sadly though there are well no not sadly in, uh, incredibly though there are other bits of research that you do that are very very interesting so i think move on to the the next one that i wanted to ask you about which was we've kind of talked a little bit about already being that dolphins uh, acting in kind of strange or unusual or different ways in the case of the plastic bag so something you kind of study or have been working on is kind of inter the interactions between dolphins and, and humans um, and how they different groups kind of act in in different ways and i wondered to help the listeners kind of visualize that is that what are the kind of range of different behaviors that you see dolphins doing and how, how are, what are the different interactions that take place so the the population of dolphins we study here um, in in the North Adriatic, we the primary method of of studying them is so-called photo identification, in which we take photographs of dolphin dorsal fins, and then we use their natural markings on these dorsal dorsal fins to recognize them and to tell individuals apart. So from that we know a, a number of things, including how large the population size and how that uh, uh, how that uh, changes through time. But we can also look at their social structure and uh, interestingly we found out that the, our population is kind of structured into different social groups uh, which means that you know dolphins just like humans can be cliquey <laughs> so they might uh, prefer certain other dolphins to hang around with um, 
and, and, and might avoid certain other individuals. And we actually see this here where we have quite a strong structuring, uh, social structuring of the population. And interestingly, uh, these dolphins differ, the two, the two main groups, uh, social groups that we know, they differ in how they interact with fishing activities in the area. Uh, here, um, as, as in many other places of the world, the so-called uh, trawlers are quite common. Trawlers are fishing boats which uh, actually uh, drag nets behind them, usually on the seafloor, but sometimes also up in the water column. And dolphins have learned to take advantage of that and to swim behind these trawlers and, uh, and feed either on the fish kind of stirred up and brought up by the net behind the net, or in some cases even going into the net itself to, to take advantage of the fish which is concentrated there and not being able to escape. And uh, we saw uh, an amazing difference between uh, these two groups where one group will pretty much uh, follow trawlers on a regular basis, not always, but quite regularly, and the other will not for some reason, which we still don't know what it is. And uh, it's an interesting pattern which has already been uh, demonstrated in some other areas to, of the world as well. Uh, but it's, what's even more interesting here is that these dolphins also uh, differ in how they use their, their area uh, in the sense that they overlap in space, but they don't overlap in time. So one group will use a given area only in certain parts of the day, and then the other group will use it in other parts of the day, and these two groups hardly ever meet. Why that's the case, we still don't know. Uh, maybe they just don't like each other. Maybe they have some sort of different feeding strategies. Uh, but interestingly, the behavior related to the fisheries doesn't explain this temporal patterning because for a number of reasons, because trawlers operate day round here. Uh, they also do not operate in certain areas where both dolphin groups come. Uh, the trawler dolphins don't necessarily always follow the trawlers, even if they're around. Anyway, so there, it's quite interesting patterning and, and interesting uh, differences in how these dolphins behave. And uh, it's not unusual to see uh, different social groups in different parts of the world, uh, you know, uh, splitting their habitat, where with one group using a certain part of the range and the other group using a different area. That has been demonstrated in a number of places worldwide. But what hasn't been demonstrated is this strange time patterning where dolphins actually share the area based on time based on time of the day. And as we were kind of discovering this and documenting it and trying to, you know, find examples of this in the literature, we found out that this time time of type of temporal partitioning doesn't seem to have been described in any mammals anywhere in the world. Uh, so it's really peculiar. Uh, we're still kind of now continuing, uh, you know, pursuing different lines of uh, further research to try to see what might be driving this. Uh, but it's also interesting to consider in the conservation framework because it shows that not all segments of the same population necessarily uh, interact with human activities in the same way, which means they might also respond differently to certain human stressors. Mm -hmm. That's really, it's, it's the temporal kind of shifting and moving of groups is really an odd thing because you'd think that would then, that will have very effect kind of diet 
and all sorts of behaviours in ways that go beyond simply, oh, they're in this space, because it's what else is going on in that space in those times. It's it's a really interesting kind of um, thing that, yeah, uh, again, too many questions. It brings up more questions than it probably answers. Uh, That's exactly <laughs> the case, yeah. Um, when we found out one thing, you know, three new questions cropped up. And uh, we also looked at, for example, pollutants, which we talked about earlier, and found out no differences there. So they're all equally loaded with uh, PCBs. Uh, but interestingly that you mentioned diet, we are now actually looking into diet uh, through so-called stable isotopes, where we can get uh, from tissue samples of the dolphins, we can actually tell uh, what they're feeding on. And, and to see, you know, the differences in, in uh, feeding. And even though we're still in a preliminary phase of looking at that, there do seem to be some differences in, in what trophic level or how high up the food chain these animals are feeding. And there, there do seem to be some differences there, which is, which is interesting. And then we, we're also looking into genetics to see if, if genetics help explain any of this. You know, if the animals within a certain uh, social groups are more related to each other than with other groups. And so this is, again, uh, something we're actively looking at now. And yeah, there's the lines of inquiry that come up are, yeah, really interesting. And I think, I don't know, it's, yeah, in the yeah, the diet thing is the one that's really sick. And because it, yeah, it, I don't know whether I'm just hungry or whatever it is, but I'm really stuck on the diet, <laughs> like, interesting. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but, fascinating and I guess something that immediately again it comes back to them feeding um but going talking about them kind of and the the interactions then with people and following the boats does that cause do you find then that the group that is following these boats is there a higher rate of them being caught in these types of activities and being or is it is there an equal chance that one of the group that is trying to stay away gets caught like is there a, a difference there that you've acknowledged yet or not that we can tell so we we observed uh, a large number of of these interactions and there's nothing to suggest that uh, these dolphins either get caught in these nets at least not not here or not very regularly and there doesn't seem to be any um, any you know injuries associated to that or 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 any retaliation by the fishermen luckily um so not not that we can tell uh, in theory, yeah, you could you can imagine that they might be more at risk from getting bycaught, and and maybe overall the risk might be there. On the other hand, they seem to be quite well uh, used to navigating around these nets, so they, maybe they're actually if they do encounter nets, who knows? Maybe they're actually less likely to get caught because they're so experienced. It's really hard to tell. Um, and then on the other hand, you know. There might be risks because of these injuries or, or risk of death, but on the other hand, there might be there clearly are benefits because of the energy of the um, food intake because it's maybe easier for them to to find sufficient food this way, uh, reduce the amount of energy they need to expend to get that food. So at the moment, we these are all kind of questions we have, but we don't know if there's any long term, you know benefit uh, to either group uh, in, in in terms of that. Interesting. Um, kind of shifting the conversation slightly, I guess, but also it kind of has to do with dividing them into these these groups and the different social interactions is that um, another bit of research that I kind of wanted to, to ask about um, was this 
the way that you identify dolphins and the way that you kind of um, split them up, because um, I, the usual way that I had heard of was the one that you mentioned, kind of using the, the dorsal, the, the fin to kind of identify markings and things um, as it comes out the water. You can get photos and all sorts of things. Um, but something that you sent me to kind of look over, you identified them using faces as well, which makes perfect sense if you're identifying something look at its face um but not something i'd heard of previously and i wanted to kind of ask why did you why what made you want to use that method or why did you start kind of looking into that method as a as an alternative or as a, an additional element to identifying the dolphins yeah so this is i think one of those in my view cool examples where you kind of stumble up across something i think by accident and not necessarily by you know, thinking about it ahead. Um, so yeah, dorsal fin uh, ID is is widespread worldwide and has been you know in existence for more than forty years now. Uh, and it, it's a well kind of proven method uh, and reliable because of two main factors. The dorsal fin is the part of the animal that shows up every time the animal comes up to surface. So it's a good part of the body to use. And then it also has a lot of distinguishing features which are individually distinct because these animals interact with each other, they bite each other during play or during fighting, and then you get these nicks and notches on the dorsal fin, which makes them sufficiently distinct that you can then tell animals apart. So part of the body that is easily visible at most surfacings and it carries sufficient information for you to identify them. So when it comes to these faces, um, this was really me when I was doing my undergrad uh, thesis and going through tons and tons of photographs uh, identifying them. Uh, just by chance, sometimes we would get uh, photographs of dolphin faces uh, in them. And I kind of caught myself uh, a few times looking at the face and, see, and, and thinking, oh, I think I know who this is. And, and this was a part of the photo where the, the head was already visible above the water surface, but the fin was still hidden un underneath. So I would flick forward to the next photo and very often, sure enough, it would be the, the dolphin that I thought, you know, that I thought it was. So at the beginning, this was just kind of a fun observation, just a, you know, haha, cool moment. But then as, as I started chatting about it to my friends and casually mentioning it in some of my talks, uh, a bunch of colleague scientists asked me, have you guys published this? I mean, this is interesting. So I said, no, we haven't. It's just, just kind of, a, you know, just an interesting observation. But then we actually decided to look at it more, more formally and more rigorously. So we actually designed a study where we, you know, collected all the photographs of faces with, that we had. We cross-referenced them to the dorsal fin so that we could know who these faces belong to. And then we had uh, naive participants who don't know these animals to try to match the faces. And the results were incredibly compelling, uh, showing that people can actually match dolphin faces, that these features on the faces were long term, so you could use them over a longer period of time. And they were also symmetric on both sides of the face. So you can match the animal from the left side to the right side of the face. And of course, this will not replace dorsal fin ID, but it can uh, complement it in a number of ways. Because, uh, you know, marks on the fins can change sometimes quite fast, especially in socially very active animals. Um, and then with, with facial features, they tend to be 
less prone to short time changes. So in theory, they might help you reduce any long-term errors in identification, but especially for calves, which tend to have clean dorsal fins with, with no markings, we often cannot tell calves apart uh, if they are not with their mother. And after they leave their mother, if they haven't acquired sufficient marking by that time, then we lose them from our radar, so, so, so to say, and we will not be able to identify them next time we meet, meet them uh, without their mother. With faces, however, this can actually help us, you know, follow these animals after they get weaned. So this can help us with cross-generational studies and having this link of who the mother was, maybe who the grandmother was, and so on. So even sort of building family trees and so on. So anyway, just th this additional method can help us uh, with cer certain aspects of uh, studying these animals, and it can improve our understanding of, of uh, their biology and ecology. Of course, it will depend between species. Some species might not lift their heads out of the water very often, so you you can't necessarily use that. Uh, there are certain studies worldwide where they actually use uh, underwater photography, so that might be more useful in that context. And then I also noticed from my from my personal uh, observations in different parts of the world that even within the same species of bottlenose dolphins, you might have differences among populations in how likely they are to put their heads out of the water. Um, so it might be more amenable in some populations and less less in others. So this is this is a method that hasn't been like you said it hasn't been described before. Uh, it, it hasn't been found in the literature. And a couple of years ago we actually published in uh, peer review literature. So uh, to actually publish this finding that you can tell. Uh, dolphins apart by faces and why it might be useful for, for certain research questions. And there was actually a re recently uh, a recent uh, master students from uh, Bangor University who tried to replicate these studies, uh, this study on uh, animals from Cardigan Bay and successfully also were able to kind of reliably distinguish them. So there might be something more to this uh, than just our weird dolphins. <laughs> yes, and it must be nice to, it goes from being uh, an interest, because I remember the one bit of, uh, when I was doing statistics, and whenever you, the person who was teaching me statistics, it was always, humans are very good at spotting and making up patterns in their head. It, it might be completely, it's just you thinking, oh, there's this or there's that. And so to have the then, to be able to justify in your head, no, there is actually, we can use these faces. It's not just a coincidence that I happen to know because I've looked through all of these pictures a hundred times that what these animals are, it must be very rewarding to kind of uh, be able to do that. Um, and yes, your answer, yeah, I, I was going to ask what the benefits, what the challenges, has anyone tried to reproduce it? But you managed to kind of include that all in your first answer. So that's really interesting. Uh, <laughs> I don't even need to be here, uh, which is. <laughs> um, so that's... one of the reasons we, one of the reasons we had these uh, naive participants was because we wanted to, you know, because we might be biased because we know these animals so well. So we wanted to have a completely independent set of eyes to look at this and, uh, you know, see if they can match them without having any prior knowledge of these animals. And uh, th this is why it was actually so compelling, because we also divided it into people who were experienced in photo ID of dolphins in general with dorsal fins. But then we also had people who were not familiar with dolphins at all 
to look at this and again the results were compelling so um, yeah that's it's really interesting and i think it's as you say a good it might be more complicated to kind of get the underwater photography right and things but it is a, a good bonus to have something else to kind of compare especially if there are these things they might have a massive scar or a scar would probably last a while but if they have a notch that slowly over time starts to change or kind of expand or whatever it is it's it's good to have these kind of backups and interesting extra things i guess we're getting towards the the end of the the interview now but i just had a couple kind of last minute last questions for you and i guess um we've talked a lot about your research and what you're doing now and kind of um what kind of questions are answering these things coming up but what is the kind of next what are you looking into now is are these still the three kind of made things or what are you looking forward to kind of studying next uh so we're still kind of yeah we're still kind of continuing in these directions um uh, that we've been looking at to kind of try to find further fine-tune some of the research questions and to also uh, underwater acoustics and underwater noise uh so we recently had a year round year-long project looking at um the presence of underwater sound in our study area and how, how that relates to uh, the animals using the area. And one thing that is also uh, our current topic of our research is to see if these different social groups, uh, if they vocalize differently, if there is anything in their vocalization that, that makes them distinguishable from one another. Uh, so it's kind of a part of the same story, trying to see what some of the drivers of this uh, partitioning and uh, acoustics plays some role in that. Uh, we're also looking at whether we can build up a catalog of so-called signature whistles. Uh, different dolphins have what, what we call signature whistles. Uh, this has been shown by, by other researchers uh, years ago that each, each individual animal actually has a unique pattern of a whistle that conveys its identity to other dolphins. So other dolphins know who is calling and they're even able to copy these sounds to actually address a specific uh, dolphin. Uh, so if you're able to build up a catalog of those sounds, uh, you're able to actually get identities of these animals by, by sound, not necessarily just by visual and, and by photographs. And if you go one step further, ideally, with time, we might even be able to cross-reference whistles to dorsal fins to actually know in the long run if we detect somebody at nighttime when we can't be out in the field uh, from these static loggers we put out in the sea, we might be able to tell, in theory at least, who was there when we were not even there to, to photograph them. So this is kind of some of the research we've been, we've been also looking at, uh, at now. Uh, we've been looking at some of the utilization of the of drones, so unmanned aerial um, uh, vehicles, uh, which are kind of emerging technology and is are, and are being used more and more worldwide for different uh, science and conservation related questions. Uh, and in case of dolphins, a very interesting um, thing to note is that drones g gave us a completely different perspective of what the animals are doing underwater. Uh, and we notice that from the boat, you get you get a very different feeling of what's actually happening under the surface than if you have a drone above them. And uh, also in relation to conservation, uh, we can look at things like body condition from these drones, and uh, that can you know help you 
make comparisons between different animals, between maybe somewhat compromised animals to, to more healthy animals. You can look at differences among populations. Uh, you can look at different periods or different seasons. So this also offers a number of interesting research avenues which we are now kind of looking into. Opening even more questions for yourself, but exactly, yes, bring some along the way. <laughs> um, well, that kind of yeah, that kind of sums up everything nicely. And I guess the last thing would be if anybody is interested in kind of keeping up with that research, where should they go and what should they look at if they're kind of interested and want to to learn more? And where should they go to to find out more? So if they want to learn more about our research, they can go to www.morigenos.org to learn more about our work. We also have a number of social media profiles such as Twitter, Facebook and, and Instagram. Um, but more general, so and people can also join us in the summer. We organize 10 day research courses where everybody can join the research team for a period of 10 days and basically experience what it's like to be a part of a team of a dolphin and a dolphin researcher. Uh, for some people, this might be a good opportunity to kind of get a feel for how this works, and then they might want to pursue a career or their studies in this direction. For other people, it just might be a different way of spending a holiday more actively and, and supporting uh, our work in, in research and conservation. Uh, but more generally speaking, how people can get involved into these kinds of things in different parts of the world, uh, there's a number of, of organizations in, in, in all over the world doing this or similar type of research um, and people can get, in, get involved in a number of ways, including, you know, uh, following these organizations on social media, uh, volunteering, um, taking part in any courses that they might be organizing, helping with uh, beach cleanups, uh, but m more, more than anything, just trying to incorporate kind of responsible choices and behaviors into your everyday life, you know, including reducing the amount of uh, disposable plastic you're using, uh, supporting, you know, sustainable development projects rather than just short term, I don't know, economic gains, uh, a number of things where we can actually make an impact to the better just by everyday choices. So that, that that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell, I guess, without going into too much detail. Sorry, just to add, for, for people who are looking into marine mammal uh, science, more specifically, there is a, a Society for Marine Mammalogy, which is a global uh, society kind of bringing together scientists and, and enthusiasts on marine mammals all over the world. Uh, the society also organizes uh, biannual conferences. Uh, in Europe, there is European Cetacean Society, which also organizes annual conferences. Uh, so, you know, interested people can go and check their websites and, and can learn mo much more about uh, marine mammals and different um, spe species and projects and so from their websites. Perfect. That sums it all up really nicely. And I'll put links to everything in the description for the episode so that if any, just make it easier for people. They don't have to write notes and everything. They can go down and just click right on all the buttons for things. Um, so, yes, thank you. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much.
and we are back. I really hope you enjoyed today's interview. It was an absolute pleasure and I cannot thank Tillan enough for his time talking about St Andrews and then the Dolphins and not just the kind of current case study but things that he's looked on in the past. All such interesting stories and perspectives that I really hope you guys gained something, gained a bit of knowledge that you didn't know before, gained a bit of perspective that you didn't have and yeah just generally enjoyed and felt inspired by what was said. Of course, if there is anything you want to learn more about, I'll put links to everything we discussed throughout the show in the description for this episode, so make sure to go down there, check them out, have a look, see what you can do if there's um, little things you want to change, if there's little tips or tricks or things that you think you can adapt into your own lives, or if you want to do more and kind of donate, or you want to contribute more than that, um, really just kind of, yeah, go and have a look, see what you can do. That kind of brings us to the, the end of today's show. Please feel free to act on anything we've said this week to help our oceans with the kind of donations or combating pollution, or of course anything we said last week on World Oceans Day to do with um, that Catherine talked about with kind of getting involved in citizen science. They're all really important concepts and all help to kind of protect the whole ocean ecosystem. So do what you can. Uh, if you have the time and you have the resources and you have all these things, please uh, make an effort to do what you can to help our our, our seas. Of course, uh, you can follow the podcast on your social media platforms of choice. We're on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook uh, and LinkedIn as well, if you're on there. Um, and make sure to follow us on your podcast streaming service of choice. Instagram, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, I think I said Instagram, that's not right. <laughs> Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, we're on Anchor and Breaker and all of the other ones, so make sure to follow us on there as well. Yeah, so thank you so, so much for listening, and until until next time, uh, yes, thank you all again so, 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 so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>